Hello and welcome to the Volrath Feed. This is the place to find out more about the very large world of commercial food service. I'm your host, Rich Rupp, product trainer and chef at the Volrath Company. And as always, I'm joined by the number one producer in the business and my co-host, Justin Pearson. Hey, Justin, how are you? I'm doing great. Well, a lot, a lot better now after accolades like that. No, I've, well, I've, I've got expectations to meet. <laughs> yeah. And you do every week. You do a great job at being our producer. So oh, thank, you. thank you for that. And as a co-host, I think we got a good gig going here, right? Yeah, you know, I, I'm feeling pretty good about it. We're 40-some-odd, yeah. uh, almost 50 episodes in, you know, still chugging along here. And Yeah, fun. Yeah. Cool, cool. Uh, just want to remind everyone that uh, with the success of the feed, Next week, we are going to be going to our uh, a different format. We're going to be incorporating uh, some more digital things that we've done and, and all an effort to really just continue the conversation in other ways. Uh, all the great content we've gotten doing the feed and just looking to keep um, bringing that forward and talking to our customers just in a little different way. That's all. So look for us um just to be on an every other week format here with a fresh podcast out there. So continuing with other digital formats and video content and other things like that. So we're, we're, we're not taking weeks off here. That's, that's for sure. No, no. <laughs> we will have plenty of stuff in between yeah. our episodes. And I guess you can really start putting a, a face to the voice. You know, I thought about that with video. Uh, <laughs> looks like the, uh, you know, they say COVID 10. I think it's more of a solid 20. Yeah, I, I've, I've got I've got data to support that statement. So. Now we're going on video. What timing is that? Jeez. Oh well, oh, all man. good stuff. Yep. yep. So today we have uh, another great show lined up. You know, we've talked a lot about consultants and their role in the industry, and I think in the consultants that we've had, it's always been kind of front of the house. We've talked about the how buffets are changing and things we're doing out front with design. And other spaces, more in the guest areas, I think, is, is where we think of it typically. But today's guest is going to be talking more about, oh, I think he does it all. But I think one area that we want to kind of find out a little bit more about is the institutional side of the business. Institutions, right. hospitals, prisons, things like that. A lot of times when you think of food service, those type of areas kind of get forgotten. And, and you got to remember that wherever there's people, there's got to be food. And you got to be able to get that food to the people. So... It's going to be pretty intriguing to to find out how that operates and the differences between, like, say, military setup and and uh, other in- institutional setups like prisons. And we don't think about it, but it's there, and mm-hmm. somebody has to design it because they need to be fast and functional. Yeah, so we're we're hoping to get some of that out of our guest today. And by the way, our guest today is Jim Peterson, who is the owner of CII Food Service Design. And these are just a couple of the areas. As they look at his bio or his um, his role, his business, he, he covers everything. He's got uh, collegiate dining. He's got banquets. He's got all this. But the area that I think I've, I've kind of looking forward to hearing about is, as we're saying here, this institutional side, prisons, things like that. We've, you know, at, at Volrath, we have some products that work in that space, but it's not the same product as other spaces. And there's reasons why, obviously, when you think about prisons. Um Sometimes, you know, our welded handle ladles, for example, do not qualify to be used in a prison because an inmate could be destructive, pull that apart, and then... Yeah, get creative gotta, with it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so there's a lot of products we have that fit, some that we don't, but I'm sure we'll hear some interesting things. And also the whole side of... Now, this isn't a 
for-profit kind of food service, right? This is run by municipalities or, or not just prisons, but hospitals and other things like that, right? That that are run in, on different cost structures, I'm sure. And we'll be interested maybe to hear about some of his thoughts on those. We look at restaurants in the U.S., there's over 600,000. I just did a little work here and Googled the prison number of prisons in the U.S. Do you have any clue how many prisons there are in the U.S.? Um, I, I am... Uh pretty certain that there's probably more in this country than there are in any other country. Yeah, certainly inmates, right? <laughs> yeah. We, we put people away a oh lot. Gosh. Yeah. I couldn't even venture a guess. Um, 7,000. 7,000? 7, roughly 7,000. Wow. And is that, I'm imagining, includes all county? Yep. State, uh, system, county, yeah. local. But it's prisons. I'm not sure if that's jail. There's jail. a distinction there, I guess, right? But huh. hospitals. Another area I kind of just picked out here. How many hospitals in the U.S.? I bet there's less than prisons. <laughs> Very good. 6,000, just wow. in round numbers. <laughs> kind of two unique food service operations, I would say. They probably have overlapping correlations, but there's, uh, and, and probably vastly different budgets too. Right. Just how they're, how they're run. I mean, and thinking about these two examples in particular, the, the, the different, problems, if you will, or thought that needs to go into certain areas like storage facilities, for example, right? In the hospital, you know, the air circulation system, for example, that can't just be blown air around the whole place. That's got to be separate, I would think. Mm -hmm. So what are their separate considerations on that? Is it, and then in prisons, is there locking things up and the relationship of how that all happens? And I don't know, just, I don't know. we'll, We'll probably... As we always say, learn something we didn't know before. I, that is the goal, always. But, you know, with with uh, this type of scenario, there's just not a lot of content out there that describes how it works. Right. Now, just how he goes about it, right? He must have a feel for how do you get to know the customer in this scenario or the customer in that scenario and what their goals are. You know, things you got to be talking to them about. What's What kind of rapport? How do you build that rapport with them? And then, um, you know, the thing about consultants is it's always about their reputation. They they bring to the table their their opinion, their their recommendations, and they their name is on the project. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something I always like to talk about cons- with consultants is how that's different than, say, one of our dealers – who have some product on the shelf. They maybe tell you about the different choices that you have, and it's more or less your decision which one you want. Here, I bet he makes more of a recommendation. That's why they're being hired. They're the experts. You know, They're the ones that are going to outfit mm-hmm. you that will best serve you and your customers' needs. Yeah, they're hired to, to know the things that uh, maybe all of us don't think of or yeah. the well, nuances. And Jim's been in the business a long time, hasn't he? He has. He has... Uh, I don't know. We've got that somewhere. Forty. I think he's been 42 years yeah. in the industry. and No, he's 45 years in the industry. Hmm. So long time. A lot of experience. Yeah. I'm sure you pick up a few things along the way there in that space. Time. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have a story or two. Play. <laughs> he's also a volunteer fireman, so I, I think that's kind of a, a neat thing, and he's got a little bit of a story here about that experience. So that'll be fun. I, I'm just getting a sense he's kind of a technical guy with all of this way he has spoken about a few things here that we found on on him today. So we'll see. Should be fun. We know that. 
And enlightening. Yes, sir. Well, what do you say we get to it and find out a little bit more about what we're talking about by bringing on our guest? That makes sense, right? So today's guest, Jim Peterson, owner of CII Food Service Design. Jim, welcome to the Volrath Feed. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Yeah, thanks again for joining us. And uh, I see here on your bio, you're a uh, 45 years in the industry. You're a lifer. Is that uh, you get involved pretty early? Yeah, I was uh, graduated from college when I was 22 and uh, started. I I started working with uh, Cine Grissom Associates, which has since evolved to become uh, Cine Little uh-huh. Associates. Right. So, did you uh, go right into the consultant side of the business? Did you work in the industry at all anywhere, any other capacity, or just right into consultant? Just um, like summer jobs that were required at Cornell uh, for uh, summer credits. Uh, my father was in the food service industry. He was um, worked for various operations companies, uh, including ARA when it was still Automatic Retailers of America. Um, and he was the first president of Aeroserve, uh, which uh, is their concessions division. Um, so, and my grandfather owned a meatpacking plant. Um, two of my cousins went to Cornell. My uncle and my dad both did. So, there's sort of a legacy there. But uh, yeah, I started working uh, with Cini Grissom right out of college. Uh, I was there for four and a half years. Um, worked for a dealer for about a year, year and a half, um, to get some some different experience which also required a move from dc to the detroit area and um after that i started out on my on my own so yeah total of uh 74 i started at at cini so do the math i guess yeah yeah it's been a while i didn't realize you were a cornell grad i was a i'm a uw stout grad so oh i I didn't congratulations That was always the talk, Cornell Stout, Cornell Stout, and hotel restaurant management back in the day. <laughs> yeah, we always... Yeah, so, sort of like, uh, I, I try not to, to wear the mantle uh, that, that maybe some Cornell graduates wear, because I, I think very typically it, it, it gets sort of compared to like the Harvard Law School. Everybody talks about the Harvard Law School. And there, there's still plenty of other great programs. So, sure, sure. Um, sure, I think Cornell is the best program, but you know, I, I, I certainly respect anybody who doesn't. Good way to work it in there. Yeah, yeah Cornell's <laughs> all, all great, but you know, I'm I'm interested in, in your grandfather owning a meatpacking plant. Did did you ever like were you able to go there, and was that a playground for you at all? It, it was not exactly a playground. It, it frequently, you know, my my dad worked for him when we lived up on uh, in the New York City area. Um, and I was, you know, seven or so, and he'd come by and he'd bring some stuff from home, from work, and we'd go, oh, we have to have snake steak again. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, but uh, it was called Peterson Owens, and uh, at Cornell we had a, uh, a meat science class, which did include a visit um, to New York, and Peterson Owens was one of the stops. So, yeah, we were out on, on the killing floor, and we saw... All the, you didn't have to go to the killing floor if you didn't want to, but it was pretty interesting, and I saw enough of that. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then the rest of the facility as well. No, that's that's a neat um, a neat thing to see, and you, you get exposed to all the areas of the industry. And and when you got into consulting, uh, did you have a specialty? Like when you started working at uh, your former um, employer there, 
did you specialize in a certain area based on likes, dislikes, or did you just kind of take the jobs they came, or how did how did you start out in in the consulting side? Well, with uh, with Cini, um basically I was you know bottom of the ladder, um, and they they hired a lot of Cornell graduates, so there was already you know, I mean there's some familiarity, uh, at least some common experiences, and and at that time in that office there were probably I think there were two or three project managers and four or five draftsmen. So I basically started out as a draftsman, which back in that, that was drafting. That wasn't computer drafting. That was, you know, triangle and square, <laughs> triangle, square pencils. Yeah. Uh, went from, went from paper to mylar to, to all that. Um, and then as, uh, as my experience there grew, I got more and more responsibilities. And then, uh, there came, uh, came a time when I felt it would be a good idea for me to get some, uh, additional specific experience. So uh, I left Saini and, and uh, started working for a company called Stainless Manufacturing, uh, which uh, has since um, been absorbed by another company and the Detroit office isn't open anymore. But I was there about a year and a half and learned quite a bit because it was a dealer fabricator all in one shop. Um, so in addition to getting an appreciation for what uh, the dealers need to do, uh, it also taught me a lot about stainless steel fabrication and, and some of the do's and don'ts and, uh, you know, not not designing myself into a corner sometimes. You know, you, you brought up uh, dealers, and maybe that's a good thing we could uh, help our guests kind of understand the difference between the dealer community and the consultant. You know, you're both dealing with customers in food service, and, and how is mm-hmm. that how is that differing, if you can help us explain that? Um, primary difference would be that um, dealers... Um, primarily sell equipment um, and consultants basically stick to the design of facilities. So um, from the consultant's perspective, um, we don't have a vested interest in how much equipment is is in a facility, you know, how much it costs, uh, because we're not, we don't get paid based on the value of the project. We basically get paid for our time, which can be expressed in a number of different ways, you know, depending on how the, the client wants it. We could work on an hourly fee. We could provide a fixed fee. Um, we could, you know, come up with a, you know, per square foot charge. I mean, there's a number of different ways to do it. But um, personally, I prefer the uh, the fixed fee. Uh, that way, the client and myself both know what to expect. And, and there's uh, fewer surprises, although, you know, sometimes the scope will change and we have to work that out. Uh, from the dealer's perspective, um, they um, offer design services, um, which is fine. Um, consultants, you know, will will point to the difference that the dealers um, do have a vested interest in um, the amount of equipment that's sold, but that doesn't on its own mean that they're acting unethically or anything like that. It's just one of those things is that the consultant um, specifically uh, works to protect the owner's interests and the dealer's uh, ultimate interest has to do with how much equipment they sell. So I I don't want that to sound like any kind of condemnation. No, no. Um, And a a lot of dealers don't offer design services. Uh, Others do. Um, So that's, basically the difference without, uh, you know, getting too much into the weeds. No, but you do make equipment recommendations or don't you get into that at all? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We, we still, we specify equipment mm-hmm. and model numbers. Uh, 
sort of a parallel is that a, an architect would hire us um, because they don't have the in-house capability of doing it, sort of the same way that they might hire uh, a swimming pool consultant or an acoustical consultant if they're, if they're doing you know, a high school, uh, they'd hire a landscape consultant. So we're, we're just one of a number of different specialty consultants that um, architects would use. So uh, the deliverable that we produce is um, we go through a design process and then the end result is a set of contract documents uh, specifications and drawings primarily. Uh, we also put together a brochure of manufacturers literature, which is normally not part of the bid documents, but it's uh, it's a reference during the design phase, um, so that uh, the owners can see what we're you know what we're proposing to include and have an opportunity to say, you know, we don't like that brand, we prefer this brand, or you know, we don't want casters, or our chef is left-handed, you know, so all, all kinds of different things. Um, but yeah, we we do specify the uh, the equipment by manufacturer and model number. How do you how do you get to that point with a manufacturer? Is it because when you specify something, you say this is the brand, this is the model, mm-hmm. it's basically your reputation every single time. Right. Uh, we keep up, uh, you know, to the extent that we can with um, new equipment, um, different manufacturers, and so on. Having done it for as long as I have, um, I sort of, you know, have my own equipment biases, mm-hmm. uh, which are based on familiarity with having used them so often. And um, those biases um, frequently have to do with such things as uh, how well the manufacturer is represented, usually by local you know, manufacturer's reps, um, the quality of the equipment, price of the equipment, um, problems that we may have experienced mm-hmm. with specific manufacturers. Uh, we don't always um, you know, try to jump in front of the curve in, in terms of, hey, here's a great piece of uh, technology that, uh, yeah, let's use. Um, we we kind of like to make sure it's you know sort of been established. And there have been a couple of times when we've specified equipment that we wished we hadn't um, and then we take that into account next time we go wrong. But we uh, we learned something different on every project, even even given that much time. You know, we managed to learn every, something. You know, every time we go to work. Do you have a specific occasion? I mean, nobody likes to talk about you know the things that failed, or but but we like to gain lessons learned. Do you have a specific mm. example of like a, a, a an equipment? We don't have to talk about manufacturers or anything, sure. but just something that that didn't work and why it didn't work and then what you mm-hmm. did to fix it. We, um, we did a correctional facility a number of years ago that had um, a walk-in, you know, pretty significant size walk-in refrigerator freezer, and we knew they were going to be using rolling equipment. So we specified that between the foam core of the floor panels uh, and, and the exposed surface of the floor panel that they, they put in um, – some plywood, I, I forget, half-inch or three-quarter-inch plywood or whatever it is, um, because it, it was not a quarry tile base in that particular project. It was a recessed base, and they're going to have rolling equipment coming in right on the, the surface. Um, soon after they opened, um, they they called up and said, what's wrong with this walk-in? You know, there's, you know, the, the equipment is, is crushing it. Um, so we suggested to the owner that they just they drill through a section and, and see if they could kind of get a core sample, if you will. 
Um, and I said, what about the plywood? And they said, there's no plywood in there. Mm. Um, so we, we touched base with the manufacturer and they basically said, uh, yeah, you caught us cutting the corner. So, hmm. uh, they were apologetic and they resolved it, but we don't use them anymore. Wow. Yeah. So, um, there's other times when there are, um, competing newer technologies that are competing, uh, for instance, with ventless hoods, um, there are a couple of manufacturers that we've specified, and uh, with one of them, we've run into, you know, sort of repetitive problems, and the other one we haven't. So, hmm. obviously, we use the one we've had the, the best experience with. But their uh, actually their equipment representation is it, it's really important for consultants, um, and a lot of people think it's something we learn in consultant school um, is that you need immediate answers. Um, so we we try not to abuse uh, our lofty status as consultants and, and maybe not so left, lofty for some people and more so for others. Um, but, you know, we try to work with the manufacturers as much as we can to, um, to give them time to answer our questions. And uh, sometimes we can't. So uh, the responsiveness is good. Um, I don't like going to websites where the only way that you can contact the factory is, is by email. And then you kind of hope that they get back in touch with you or not. Some of them don't even have uh, phone numbers. Mm -hmm. So um, if I can't get good responses from either the factory or their local reps, um, you know, I'm probably going to end up looking somewhere else, unless there's a specific reason. If if a client, you know, really wants, you know, brand X and I've suggested brand Y, you know, then we'll go, we give them enough information so that they know why we prefer one over the other. And then we give them enough information so that they can, they can make an informed decision. Um, and then uh, ultimately, you know, one, once we're confident that, that they have, have made the decision that, that will be best for them, then uh, we'll go ahead. We, we haven't run into any situations that I can think of where the owner was just such a jerk that you know, we said, <laughs> I don't want to work with you anymore. <laughs> you know, that, that's not a great reputation we have or that, that we would want to have. I, I hope we don't have that reputation. What does the process look like when you are vetting new technologies that you're like, yeah, this will probably uh, become industry standard at some point, you know, like a, like a combi oven or, sure. or uh, induction, you know, things, the, things that are going to be standardized at some point. Right. I like to go to whatever shows I can, obviously, the past year. Yeah, um, yeah. That's, you know, we were supposed to have a NAFM show, which has now been rescheduled for this coming August. Um, so I like to go to shows, uh, to see equipment and also to catch up with, with people. Um, there are a lot more web opportunities, online opportunities to talk with manufacturers now because they don't have the reps, you know, the standard office visits that they like to have. Um, and that is actually easier to do now to, you know, to go to an hour podcast or, um, some sort of educational event online. Uh, to learn about different manufacturers' equipment. Um, some of it has to do, I'd say not so much with recommendations from people, although if the client you know, has a recommendation, obviously we're going to look at that. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, we, we try not to, not to be the, the one on the tip of the spear when it comes to that stuff. And, and one reason why is frequently the, the newer, um, newer technology has a price tag that goes with it. Um, and since... Our clients are primarily public money projects. They don't have very deep pockets, so we're pretty conservative about the way that, 
that we, you know, that we specify equipment for that kind of facility. Yeah, I suppose it just for for those type of clients, it needs to be bulletproof and time tested, and it needs to last a long time as well. Right, pretty much. We we don't maybe experiment is not the right word. I mean, we, with the other examples I mentioned, yeah, there have been some things we wouldn't want to do again. Um, but we find that in um, institutional food service, particularly when it's you know schools or correctional facilities or military facilities, um, they're not really interested in blazing new trails. Um, and in the case of educational facilities, for instance, um, they don't have the budget for us to introduce even established technologies um, that might be uh, might work very well for them. But because of the bonding process and the way that they get their money, um, they don't normally have the option of looking at a, um, a return on investment type thing where we can say, hey, if you spend $20,000, this thing will pay for itself in three years. Well, they don't have the $20,000 and they can't spend it. So um, with you know relatively s- small districts and, and smaller schools, you know, we don't get into, you know, pulping systems, for instance, which, you know, could be valuable to them and, and you know, in the right situations could help them. But they they just don't have the uh, the money for, you know, for that kind of technology when it's not required. New technologies that come along that are required or are very common uh, that are relatively new, like um, the uh, demand control kitchen ventilation systems. Um you know, those basically go into every project, and it's one of those things the client really doesn't realize that it's there, um, but we include it because it's it's almost, if not actually, becoming a requirement to do that. You mentioned uh, the amount of work you're doing in correctional and, and some of the other uh, institutional settings, and some of the differences, especially the money side, what are some other considerations that are different in that environment versus people who work more on um, uh, front of house kind of projects in restaurants mm-hmm. and businesses and things like that? Um, one thing with those types of projects is that um, you're pretty sure that you're going to get paid for it. Um, one of the reasons that I, I don't do a lot of restaurants, um, and, and it's not like I turn down a lot of restaurant work, it just doesn't come up very frequently for me. Um, but when I have um, you know, unless it's, you know, and even if it is, you know, a high-end restaurant with, you know, you know, distinguished chefs and that sort of thing, um, restaurant operators usually are equipping their spaces, um, you know, they, they, they're very conscious of, of how much it costs. Um, so, uh, I don't get too involved because candidly, I've, I've had some issues with, um, you know, I'm a line item, basically. And if, if they have the choice between hiring a consultant and, you know, getting a bigger dishwasher, you know, they may go with the dishwasher. Um, restaurant owners, uh, private projects, I think a lot of time require a lot more hand-holding, too. Not that that doesn't happen with uh, more institutional projects. Um, but it's, it's tough to work with a fixed fee um, when the owner, you know, keeps on changing things, um, because I'm, I'm reluctant to, you know, to go 
to nickel and dime a client by saying, hey, you know, you didn't ask me before to do this study or to, to compare this piece of equipment, so now you got to give me more money. Um, and candidly, I don't know if other consultants do that or not. When uh, when I talk with other consultants, it um, doesn't usually get into fees and that sort of stuff. So you're on the uh, institutional side a lot, and I guess um, I read something. You prefer kind of that medium size. You don't look for the biggest jobs either, right? You, you kind of like that medium-sized job. Uh, you did one job. It was like what thirty thousand meals a day or something. Is that is that what I heard? That's yeah, a that was a, a correctional a regional <laughs> correctional facility, um, and that was a, it was a cook chill facility, and um, we had been doing a lot of correctional facilities for that particular client. So uh, that project came along, and we and we did that, and it worked out fine. Um, and so I guess it's not a question so much that I don't go after big projects. Um, correctional facilities particularly, you know, can get pretty large and pretty involved. Um, but most of the projects I get are, you know, four or $500,000 kitchens. Uh, the cook chill kitchen was about $2 million worth of equipment. Oh, big stuff. It, it, well, it, it, it's big, but you know, a lot of my peers do, um, you know, like stadiums and arenas, you know, mm -hmm. and, and they're talking about, you know, 40 and 50 different food outlets or more. Um, I've, I've worked with uh, a couple of other consultants. I've helped them out with doing punch lists and, and that sort of thing on those larger facilities. So I do have some contact with that. I've designed a couple of smaller uh, venues like that. But uh, at this point in my career, uh, you know, where circumstances, you know, basically um, my area of expertise has sort of become more focused. So um, I'm not really looking to start to branch out into new things. I was thinking like the smaller ones, does that allow you to be a little bit more maybe hands-on or a little bit closer to the project? Or isn't that, doesn't that scale that way with large to small? What I kind of like about it is with, with smaller facilities, uh, you have to be a lot more creative with mm. the way that you use their space. You have to uh, use their space efficiently, sometimes make it adaptable for a couple of different purposes um, or uh, for instance every kitchen that we do as much of the equipment as possible we put on casters so that if they want to change the configuration uh, I'm, I'm working on a church kitchen for instance um, where they're it's a pretty good sized church um, and they want to have the capability of serving meals for a function uh, they're right next to a teen room so they want to have popcorn and that kind of stuff and it's on an outside wall, and they have a uh, a concessions window for some of their outside uh, events that they do. Um, and all that is happening in a relatively small kitchen. So um, I, I, I kind of like that part of it. Um, I'd probably make more money if I was doing the other stuff. But uh, since I, you know, I work by myself, um, I don't have too much control over the hours that I work, but I do have a lot of control over when I do those hours. Uh, and I like having that, that flexibility and, and not having a whole lot of pressure mm -hmm. to get my stuff done. There you go. That means a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Big control. Absolutely. Right. Can't put a price tag on sanity. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, one thing my dad used to tell me is um, that, that sanity is having options. Um, and then, you know, if, and whether it's food service or anything else, I mean, if, if you're going down a path and your options become less and less, and you and you finally have to focus on something you really wouldn't have chosen. That's pretty stressful. You mentioned uh, 
flexibility. Is that something that you've designed all along? We hear a lot about that now, especially with COVID and everything that's gone on, that people are looking for ways to be flexible and they're being cautious that anything they redesign, they're building in that flexibility too. But is that something you've always tried to to encourage your, your jobs to consider? At the beginning of the project, we go through a, a questionnaire that, that we will have de- developed for each project um, and go through what they want to do. Um, and that will sort of define how flexible it needs to be. And, and obviously, we we recommend as much flexibility as we can. In a restaurant, you probably would not have as much mobile equipment. Obviously, you have some you know, racks and ice bins, maybe, and that sort of thing. Um, but your chef's table is very unlikely to be mobile. Uh, so a restaurant, um, particularly once they've given you their menu, you, you sort of need you know, to design towards that, but recognize that at some point, if this restaurant wants to change their menu or if they close and somebody else, you know, buys it and wants to convert it to something else, um, flexibility is still kind of a nice thing to have. So we, we try to do it as much as we can, but we also, you know, take note of, of what the facility is really intended to do. Um, and you know, if, if a lot of extra flexibility isn't required and there's a price to doing that, then we, we wouldn't include it. Now, Jim, I'm really fascinated about uh, the food service that happens that we really don't think about, that most people don't think about, and specifically in like correctional facilities. Mm-hmm. Can you walk me through like what a typical you know, medium-sized facility that you design for, what does that look like? And, and along with that, what are things that you have to do differently to accommodate their protocols for security sure. and whatever. Yeah, security is um, is basically the biggest um, unique factor to doing correctional facilities. Um, and just basically going through the, the flow of the project, um, the first thing is you need to receive your, your food items uh, from outside the walls. Um, so we need to work with the architect and the food service people at, at the uh, facility uh, to determine if if that's going to be a sally port where the vehicle basically has to a sally port for your listeners who don't know what that is is basically I don't know what it is okay so, well, so I think so it's I think my head moved too <laughs> nobody except me um, a sally port is is basically along the lines of an airlock but it has to do with um, with trucks so okay. a sally port for a vehicle would be a big fenced area with a gate at each end uh, it would open on the public side truck would come in, they close the gate, they inspect the truck, you know, they do what they need to in terms of verifying that the people driving the truck are who they think they are or who they say they are. Um, and then once they're clear to go in, then the inside door opens and, um, okay. you know, then the truck can get in. Um, so the Sally another, Port is where uh, all the movie escapes happen through, the laundry trucks and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. That, yeah. And um, interestingly, I... I'm on the fire department locally, and we have a prison um, that's in our response area. So uh, we do go in there from time to time, um, either for training or, you know, sometimes there's an actual call. And, you know, the fire trucks basically have to go through the sally port, and they check everybody's ID and all that. Um, Fortunately, the prison knows that it's going to take a few minutes for us to get inside. So they usually also have some sort of a fire brigade to, you know, take care of what they can. Hmm. Um, but I digress. 
Um, <laughs> so another thing we, that we'll do particularly, well, I guess it could be any size facility, um, is that you make the loading dock itself secure. So um, a truck can, can back up um, from the outside part um, and then deliver their goods uh, into a receiving area that excludes prisoners um, or maybe allows trustees, you know, depending on, on how the particular facility is. Um, but that the only time that that those goods can be received is obviously there's going to be control over the, the entry doors. Um, they could load directly into walk-in refrigerators or directly into storage areas, you know, dry storage areas for that matter. Um, and the the storage area itself is the sally port because um, only one door is ever open at a time. So you can have a dry storage area with a door on it. The trucker, you know, or whomever can, um, you know, load the stuff into an area or just leave the boxes there. Then they shut the door and then the inmates can come in the other side um, and they, they can do the work. Um, some facilities don't, like jails, for instance, where the, uh, the sentences are shorter uh, and they don't necessarily have as much time to train. You know, they don't have the same kind of inmate base, I guess you'd call it. Um, are more likely uh, than prisons to be run without any kind of inmate help. Um, but um, so anyway, so that's the receiving side of things. Um, the other thing we like to do um, is to provide an ingredient room between storage and production uh, so that, again, you have selected inmates, one or two of them who can go in They've got the recipes for that day, or at least they know, you know, what volumes of, of food and, and which items they need. So they can take those out of the main storage areas and uh, in the ingredient room and then put them into, you know, a day or two day holding area. Um, because it, it's important to be sure that your food storage is separated from the inmates, because if there is what they euphemistically say a disturbance, um, <laughs> <laughs> they don't want the inmates to have access to the food because it could feed the disturbance for one thing, mm. or the inmates, you know, could just go in and, and vandalize the food. I mm -hmm. guess that's something you don't think of. It, it could prolong yeah. something if they had access to it. Yeah. That's, that's right. Another reason that we like the ingredient room uh, is because it allows you to segregate that area um, to a very select number of inmates because they're going to have access uh, to slicers and mixers and um, mm -hmm. mallets and, and knives and that sort of thing. Um, and in maximum security facilities, frequently that will just be one guy has his private room. Um, not him personally, obviously, but um, they only, only accommodates one inmate at a time. Uh, for maximum security, we might have um, knives, um, you know, with, with chains attaching them uh, to uh, to some surface, the table or whatever, or uh, there will be an issue type function where there's a a door or some sort of way where there are shadow boxes and they can be issued the specific tools that they need, um, and then before they let them out of the room, basically all those tools have to be returned to them. Uh, that gives the prison uh, the ability to, you know, not to put two guys into a room like that 
where the guys may not be too crazy about one another and you know what they feel about one another could change from one day to the next so um lower security prisons that that's not as much of an issue but it it's still uh, an ingredient room is something that's not unique to uh, correctional facilities um particularly large healthcare facilities and, and other larger operations uh it'll provide a a means of uh food service security or you know you have less stuff walking out the back door um, then once you get to production, um, pretty much everything is, is going to be, you know, large batch, you know, the, the only, um, special, special diets, uh, there are sometimes, um, you know, there's going to be some medical diets, uh, there may be vegetarian diets, um, there may be some religious diets, although most of those are accommodated by the menu just doesn't include uh, items like pork, for instance, um, that that some religions you know don't eat. Um, and then we've had one or two situations where um, we actually had to provide a, a kosher kitchen, um, and and in that case, you know, the utensils and so on all have to be separated, you know, dairy and meat and all that. All right. Um, so um, that can become an issue. Um, some facilities just go around that by saying, you know what, if they were that religious, they shouldn't be here in the first place, so they can eat what everybody else eats. Uh, I, that that may have been a little bit easier to do, uh, not quite so politically correct anymore. Right, right. Uh, then what? Okay, so service. Um, you could have individual trays that would go to cells or to pods. Um, the guys in administrative segregation, uh, which is... Um, Solitary confinement. Um, what, what, take, what was that called? Administration. Administrative segregation. Oh, all right. That's, that um, sounds. It doesn't mean they've been bad. They have solitary confinement for other stuff too. But sure. uh, like everything else, you the language changes over time. Like when I started, we had sneeze guards, uh, and then they became breath protectors, and now they're food shields. So, you know, yeah. the the language and, and terminology changes over time. Um, you can you could pre uh, pre-portion trays, send them up to the pods where you'd have, you know, 20, 24 inmates and they all get the same thing. Um, it could be in-cell individual pre-plated trays. Um, you could have group dining, um, within, you know, certain sizes, depending again on whether it's maximum security or not. Sometimes the guards might eat in this, in the same room with the inmates at their own table. Um, sometimes they may not. Uh, we, are working on a project now that um, is sort of on hold, um, but they're looking at uh, what they what you might call the European model uh, of uh, of corrections, where um, you, you can, for lack of a better phrase, that you treat the inmates a lot better, um, and we are looking at things like um, a uh, an area where they prepare to convert from being in prison to being out of prison. Um, so they have special areas like that where they start to relax some of their requirements, even to the point where the inmates in that pod, you know, uh, can come up with their own menus um, and they give them an area of cooking equipment and um, they and then they order their own food and everything. Obviously, everything still goes through the prison, but it starts to give them... Um, 
an introduction into, you know, working with people and what you do when you disagree with somebody. Um, you know, how do you make toast? You know, stuff <laughs> that, that they, you know, may have forgotten. Yeah. Um, and then uh, lastly, um, you get to, um, to wear washing. Um, you know, do the inmates put soil trays on a cart? Do they put it on a conveyor? Um, you know, are, is it inmates or um, civilians doing the wear washing? Usually it's going to be inmates. So, okay, how do you, how do you prevent interface between the, the wear washer inmates and the diner inmates? Um, you know, how do you give them the type of communication they need um, without uh, taking chances? Um, so like we, we did a project where one of the deals is you want to give the inmates as much choice, um, as you think is appropriate. And some facilities are still pretty much everybody eats the same thing, but most facilities, you know, maybe they can declare themselves a vegetarian. Maybe they have a salad bar. Um, maybe they have self-serve beverages that kind of goes back to that European model a little bit. Um, but we had a prison one time where they had the option of asking for, say, uh, a second serving of vegetables, or they had an option between, um, you know, a burger and stew or something like that. Um, so they wanted to be the inmates to be able to transmit to the server what they wanted, but they didn't want the inmates to be able to see who it was making the request. Um, you know, Again, somebody goes through and the guy doing the serving doesn't like the guy, you know, and it, and it gives him, you know, a tiny little portion um, or his friend goes through and he gets he gets all kind of stuff. So <laughs> we came up. I forget that facility never got built, so I don't know how they were how they would have finally resolved it. But we had things where the, the inmate would you know, like like have a little push bar that he could push and, and little semaphore flags on the inside would lift up and say, Oh, he wants me. And it was kind of nuts. Um, so, uh, and then, uh, once you're finished, uh, solid waste control, um, is pretty much like receiving in reverse is that you, uh, you take your garbage out and depending on what kind of system you're using, um, at some point you're going to have something that's going to be trucked away by somebody else. Um, and you know, is that just a lockable door that you can throw garbage into a dumpster? Um, or does that allow for the same type of, you know, the laundry hamper kind of thing? <laughs> I'll jump into the dumpster. Right. Um, right. and they may not realize it. They may not realize it's actually a compactor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, you, you want to have the same number of inmates you started with and, uh, um, but, uh, you know, a county jail, for instance, they, they could be pretty lax, especially a small county. You know, they got their trustees and, you know, they're in jail for DUI or, or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, they know that they're not really much of a flight risk. So, you know, sometimes they, they kind of have, uh, if not totally free reign, um, you know, they they can do those kind of things without being overly concerned about the security side of things. I know that some of the equipment that goes into prisons, the individual pieces, uh, there's like an equipment package. Some of the equipment comes with a, an, mm -hmm. uh, a prison package, rather. Right. Um, and things like I was saying earlier that even a two-piece ladle design isn't approved for prisons because they could take the two pieces apart and end up with something they could oh. use in another way, right? What are some right. considerations on equipment, like 
screws that can't easily be turned out? Or is there other things sure. that that you, you have to do specifically for prisons? Yeah, most manufacturers, and again, it kind of goes to the security level that they require, um, but most manufacturers will have a prison package um, that isn't necessarily consistent, um, or they might have specific features, uh, for instance, vandal-proof screws. Um, and inmates are, you know, they don't have, you know, they have a lot of free time. So um, if you're going to go with some sort of a vandal-proof uh, fastener, you need to remember that an inmate can, you know, if he has a plastic toothbrush, he can sort of melt the end of the toothbrush and stick it into the uh, into the fitting the mold, yeah. and yeah, mold and mold a, a thing. Um, a lot of them will have or can provide um, clear or um, stainless covers that go over the controls uh, to a specific piece. Um, if we have walk-in equipment, well, actually every project we put uh, internal alarms um, into walk-in refrigerators um, just in case you know people get stuck in there or whatever. And in the case of a prison, you know, they, somebody might shut them in there intentionally. Um, same thing with uh, things like rack ovens. Um, we put an internal disconnect uh, switch in there. Uh, again, if, if you know, one inmate throws another inmate into the oven and, and shuts the door, you know, you're going to have an issue, uh, <laughs> particularly if he turns the oven on. So, um, so there'll be an, you know, a red button that, that the inmate will be trained uh, to know that it's there and and that would disconnect uh, the motion of it. Um, most of our prisons, because they they don't have again all really really deep pockets, we try to go sort of downhill on the sophistication side a little bit. So instead of a lot of computerized controls or you know automatic motors for tilting skillets and that kind of stuff, you know we'll go manual um, and almost consider the the equipment just this side of disposable. Um, hmm. a, another thing that has been done, which is sort of in the other direction that we've done once or twice, um, is that they want to have remote controls so that all of the equipment's controls goes into a central control room. Uh, and that's where, um, you know, the, the temperatures and, and, you know, times and, and all that get done, and all the inmate basically does is take the food in and put the food in and take it out. Um, I, get, I mean, and there's still opportunities. No matter what you do, the inmates will will find a way uh, to defeat it. We were at a, uh, a prison one time um, where they had a bunch of uh, convection ovens, and it had a fan mounted on the side of the ovens, um, and it had you know, a, a sort of a grate that that protected the fan. Um, but the inmates, you know, they had a bank of five or six of these. And when uh, nobody was looking, the inmates would go down and they'd jam something inside that housing um, and, you know, burn the fan up. So, you know, then you go out and spend, you know, hundreds of dollars to, you know, to, to fix each fan. Um, and that means that the service guy... He has to come in through the sally port, has to have all his tools counted and verified, uh, have his ID checked and everything, then go in with an escort to where the work has to be done. Uh, if he forgot a tool or a part, he has to go through the whole, he has to pack everything up, 
take it out with them, get the extra part, then go through the whole thing, come back in again, uh, go through that process, and then you leave, and two days later, they've jammed up all the motors again. Huh. So, you know, when we, when we can avoid that sort of thing, um, you know, the, the inmates, you know, they, they can abuse equipment, and even though food service is normally continue, considered to be a pretty nice job to have if you're in a prison, um, you know, there's still no guarantees, and, and there's still some, some issues violent with uh, inmates hurting one another or uh, hurting food service civilians um, who, you know, that's just their job to be there. I know you mentioned uh, uh, public money. When you're doing a job, do you have um, considerations or do you warn people or do you build in things for cost overruns? Um, I know everything I've ever done, people always will say, well, don't forget to factor in a little bit of things that you didn't think about. And do you have a, mm -hmm. a number you work with or that you factor in on your own or you just warn your client that, hey, this is usually what we figure? Is there a set kind of percentage that you work with? During the construction process, um, the, the overall project, you know, all the contractors, the building, the plumbers, the electricians, food service, floor guys, whoever, that whole process typically has like a 10 percent, you know, safety factor built into it. Um, in our case, we try to, we don't frequently get somebody, well, we do sometimes, maybe 10, 15 percent of the time, somebody will come to us and they will have already determined what the food service equipment budget is. They say, this is how much we have to spend. Like a school, that's what's been budgeted. You know, uh, in Michigan, where I am, uh, if, they, um, if they make a lot of money one year, um, they're kind of obligated to put that extra money back into, into the kitchen. Um, but we don't always get um, a hard budget. Um, so we design it towards what they need. Uh, and then we will run an estimate and we'll say, here's how much it costs. And they'll say, okay, that's fine. Or, you know, we need to make it cheaper. Um, or we say, well, listen, we, we'll identify equipment that you may not need right off the bat um, so that you can build the kitchen for what you need. And then, um, you know, in two years, you know, if you want to include a salad bar, you know, then you can bring it in later on. We try not to do that because voters are going to vote for, for a bond issue, if that's the way the school is, is doing things. Um, and, hey, look at this brand-new kitchen we designed. It's beautiful and great. And then 18 months later, they come back and say, yeah, you know what, we need such and such. And the voters are going to say, time out. You know, we, we just got you a brand-new kitchen. Now you're telling us we need other stuff. So we need to take all that into consideration while we're doing it. You mentioned a couple of times that survey that you give to your customers ahead of time. Like mm -hmm. on that survey, I'm sure there's a ton of things like the five things that that um, you find most important on that survey. What are the like the five pieces of information that you find most important from that survey? Um, menu is always going to be the most important. Receiving frequency and, and how they get their stuff. Um, schools, for instance, will get milk two or three times a week, vegetables maybe a couple times a week. And sometimes they can benefit from uh, things like government food programs and so on. You know, they, they want to be able to store a boxcar full of cheese, um, which we can't do, but, but we need that. We need just the whole storage situation so we can make sure uh, we've got what they need. So that's two. 
um, how they're going to serve it, you know, whether it's a hospital or an old folks home or home or a church or correctional facility, how does the food get to the end user or the consumer, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, Waste removal, particularly solid waste, um, has become uh, a pretty big deal because a lot of um, a lot of jurisdictions have prohibitions on what goes into their into their systems, um, particularly when we're talking about disposers, um, where at one time we could use disposers uh, as sort of a, a handy way just to get rid of all the stuff you don't want. Um, but now more and more areas, and, and we assume it to be the case with all our projects, um, are going to require that that um, from a disposer go through a solid separator and then through a grease trap, which it didn't used to have to do. Um, so solid, how, how they're handling solid waste, and, and for that matter, um, you know, even having hot water go down a drain, do we need to put a tempering uh, a device on there so that it's not too hot? Because with uh, PVC piping, there's a limit, you know, depending on the type of piping, there's a limit as to how hot the water can be. So if you've got a dishwasher and it's, you know, wasting water at 140 degrees, um, you know, that, that could be a problem. Oh, um, that's interesting. I would have thought of that one. And I guess the other thing, I'm up, I'm up to four, I think. So now <laughs> I wasn't going to hold you to the five. But okay. <laughs> I'm, well, I, I, I've got number five. It's okay, not a good. specific... Not a specific piece of equipment, but just in terms of sustainability, um, if there are affordable, um, you know, heat reclaim systems, um, there are dishwashers where you can, you know, instead of being vented traditionally, uh, it captures uh, the the exhaust steam. Basically, it condenses it back, you know, recaptures some of that heat. Uh, it avoids the need for exhaust going out, so you don't have as much CFM leaving the place. Um, and then just other opportunities for sustainability in general. They can get pretty expensive, um, but some of them, again, as the technology evolves, uh, it's one of the, some of them are the kind of things where, you know, like I mentioned with the uh, the demand control kitchen ventilation, um, which is basically a sustainability issue. Um, those sorts of things just sort of become standard and, and doesn't really involve um, much input from from the owner. Um, and, and we have different questionnaires for different projects, different types of projects, you know, schools, churches, mm-hmm. uh, correctional facilities, uh, banquet facilities. A lot of this, a lot of them are the same. A lot of the questions are the same and a lot of them are different. But but those those five, um, I think, would probably probably apply to every project. I was surprised. I wouldn't have thought of some of those that um, those are things you want to know up front. Just the the waste is is an issue, and it, it, it's expensive to get rid of waste. And as you said years ago, everything went down the disposer and right. magically just went away. And now there's all those other considerations. So certainly a lot more than uh, most people would think of. And that's mm-hmm. that's all real commercial, not just prisons or hospitals or yeah. Yeah, that applies to pretty much everything yeah, because, right. like I said, it's the jurisdictions. If it's a, if it's a uh, a municipal system, um, and actually, it's a problem that they've always had. If you were working off a septic system, a lot of this, a lot of stuff I work on is you know they're out in the country and and the waste from the school goes into a septic system. Well, you know, you, you want to exclude a lot of stuff if you can before it mm-hmm. gets in there. So it, it it's sort of always been a thing, um, but. 
it, it's getting to be uh, you know more and more common. One interesting thing with schools is, is you get um, sometimes you get very active parent groups involved. Hmm. Um, we we had a and I, it's just a story that doesn't have to do with much of anything what we're talking about, I guess. But my um, favorite kind of stories. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We had a um, a, a fairly well-to-do um, school system that we were working with, and um, they had a very active individual parent who was very concerned about lead in water. Um, so she had somebody come in and you know go to all the drinking fountains and you know and 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 the kitchen and you know all the water that could be you know might might be consumed and she sent it off to a place and had it tested for lead and she said look these lead levels are too high blah 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 and we had to do some research because it was un, unknown to us it was sort of a new issue um uh, and and most uh most equipment is already designed you know, not to impart lead um you know your faucets and so on um most of them are, are lead-free. Um, but it turned out that there's a protocol for um, measuring the appropriate level of lead, and she wasn't doing that. So she, she just took water and tested it, you know, someplace, and uh, they said, oh, yeah, here's the lead level, and then she compared that to another chart, and, oh, this is dangerous. Um, so it's... Uh, and churches, I guess, sort of have a similar thing, where you go through the design, and then... You know, Mildred comes back from a cruise and she says, oh, I think this is a bad place for the dishwasher. So, you know, you have to start all over. Not start all over again because it's like we like to have one point in responsibility, but churches are particularly um, difficult to work with sometimes because it, it is very frequently uh, designed by uh, committee. Yeah, a lot of cooks in that kitchen, literally. Oh, literally. Too many. Yeah. Too many. I, yeah. It's funny you should bring that up that way. And I helped out at my church recently and... Then uh, some other people came in, and they ended up moving the hood, and I kind of objected, and this guy put his foot down, and everyone kind of looked around and thought, okay, we'll leave it to be that he, and I went in afterwards, and I just, I know it wasn't right, but that's what the committee decided, so that's what ended up happening. Yeah, yeah why well, listen yeah. to the chef, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and that goes back to um, you know, one reason for the questionnaire primarily is to make sure that, you know, the kitchen is, is what they need it to be, um, but we want the owner to be as involved as they can. So we, as we go through the design, we have their input, you know, every step of the way. Most of that, 90% of that is, is to be sure the facility is what they want. 10% of that is if we've gone through that process and they go to the kitchen and they say, this isn't what we wanted, that we can say, wait a minute, remember, you know, yeah, yeah. you reviewed this, you reviewed that, we looked at that, we talked about this. Um, so, uh, but like I said, mainly it's you know, our goal is to make sure that the the kitchen does what the owner wants it to do, um, and uh, if there's a side benefit to helping us retain our sanity, then you know, that's okay. <laughs> well, you force them to kind of look at some of those issues that maybe they wouldn't have thought of until the day you came to them needing a decision or you know mm -hmm. proposing it for the first time. Here, they've got some some time to think it through and and decide. Right. So. And it, the questionnaire, I mean, it doesn't replace the rest of the design process, but it, it basically gives you a place to start from. And you know, we go into it expecting that you know we're, we're going to you know, start with um, start with um, the, you know the basic parameters and uh, schematic drawings and that sort of stuff. And 
and we get deeper and deeper into it. But all along the way, we want the owner to, to change what they want to change. If, we, if we've come up with a design and we go to a meeting, we present it and everybody says, yeah, that looks good. We're like, no, we don't want it. You know, yeah. we don't trust you. We don't say it's, that. But That's a red but flag, though, for it, sure. It, it, exactly. Yeah, it's a red flag. It's like, well, let's talk about this. You know, what do you think about this versus this? Because a lot of it is, is you know, my impression of what they want to do or things that I'm used to be doing. And, you know, some operators um, aren't necessarily sophisticated enough to to look for those things on their own. Um, and then sometimes with, with correctional facilities and schools, uh, particularly, um, they're frequently operate, operated by uh, contract food service operators. Um, so how involved will they be in the design? Because they will be inclined to, to help design it towards their own standards. And the owner um, is usually very aware of the fact that you know, they may be changing food service companies in a year or two years. Well, we don't want them overly involved. Well, okay, but if they're not involved at all, then you're you're talking with, you know, the guy who runs the bus garage or who knows, you know, who the person responsible for facilities is. <laughs> School systems, and, and, yeah, it is kind of funny, but... No, it's, it's true, it, though. <laughs> yeah, it's very common. You know, the, the guy in charge of facilities um, at a school... Um, could also you know, he he could be responsible for the bus garage. I mean they're you know they're small. They got to share their tasks. Yeah. Um, so I always like to have somebody who knows something about food service involved. Um, mm -hmm. If I have to design a totally generic kitchen, I know that they're not going to like it. Right. Well, Jim, uh, thank you again uh, so much for joining us today. Uh, I always find uh, hearing about. The, the consultant side of what you do and, and the facilities you work in, very interesting. And certainly we, we talked earlier, I don't think we've had anybody go into the prisons and the correctional facilities as much as you did there. So thank you for... I, I ramble sometimes. No, no, it's yeah, all it was, good. We appreciate it. It's all good, man. Yeah, very good. Um, and before we let you go, though, I, I know that um, we always like to ask our guests at some point in your career, your life, you've heard something, there's been a quote or something some, someone has said to you that... Um, has inspired you or drives you or influences you. Do you have anything like that you'd like to share with our guests today, that, something that, that you find inspiring? Yeah, something that, uh, that my dad used to tell me. His, his role was, uh, was management, um, basically. So he had, uh, he had people he, he was responsible to and that he was responsible for. Um, and in my role as a consultant, it's sort of the same way, even though I don't have any employees, um, I have my clients I need to respond to, and then I, I need to, um, you know, make sure that I've also got the relationships with the, you know, the manufacturers and so on. Um, but what he, he told me was um, take the blame and distribute the credit. Uh, uh, good philosophy if you're, uh, especially with your customers and take the... Well, applicable take, to any management position. Yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. Yeah. Good way to look at it there, Jim. Very good. If people wanted to reach out to you and they, they uh, would like to talk to you, possibly uh, look at your services, how would they get in touch with you? Um, I have a website, uh, which is C-I-I-F-S-D. Yeah, they could contact me there, and there, there's a contact form. And 
Jim, all right. Thanks again. I, we really appreciate it today. Hope uh, wish you the best of luck everything going forward with Mir and uh, thanks again for everything. Take care. Best Thank of luck today. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Same to you. Well, Justin, how's that for a area of food service that, uh, like we say, all wow. areas, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, truly, we did not even scratch the surface of, of Jim's knowledge in in his field. Uh, there's there's just so much more. I mean, really, I could have just kept listening to him. Um, well, Jim's certainly an expert. Uh, 45 years uh, experience doing what he's doing, and you know, we were asking him, and he he just knows so much about the topic. And uh, <laughs> again, that those areas that not everyone thinks of. It's not front of the house of uh, the local restaurant. This is uh, completely different. So perfect, absolutely perfect. All right. So Justin, any closing thoughts today? I would like to remind everyone to hit that subscribe button. Never miss another moment with a chef or food service industry professional again. And while you're at it, if you would take a moment to send us a review and possibly let us know a topic that you would like us to to talk about, and we will try and get to that. Right. If you have those ideas, please reach out to us at bullrathfoodservice.com slash the feed. And uh, as closing, my quote is always, and it is whatever it is you do, if you're in the business, do it like there's a customer watching you. It's a good way to make sure you're always doing the right thing. That's it today for everybody. Thank you again for listening. Have a great week ahead. Until next time, take care.